So why, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Hallelujah. The word of the Lord. Somebody else want to read Psalm 96 for us? And when you're reading through Psalm 96, you can stop at verse 6. So Psalm 96, 1 through 6. We'd like to read that. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people. Peoples, for great is the Lord and the most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Hallelujah. Who'd like to read Malachi 1, 11 through 12? Great, thank you. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit that is its food may be despised. Someone want to read Matthew 24? Verse 11 through 12, 13, 14. Matthew 24, 17. Verse 11 through 14. It's reminding me of like the Bible drills in camp. It's like, hey, hey, look at it. Zechariah, Malachi, Malachi, last week of the Testament. All right. Rachel, go ahead. Matthew 24. One last one, Revelation, chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. Revelation, chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. Well, maybe second to last one. Revelation 5, 9 and 10, and then we'll do Revelation 7. Great, Alicia. 
Revelations 5, 9, and 10. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you, are, you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Hallelujah. The glorious destiny of the saints. And then Revelation 7. I'll find what the reference is for this one. Sorry. So Revelation 7. And I'll read this one. After these things I looked and behold, verse 9, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels who were standing, standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, they all fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. There's a famous John Piper quote. The quote says that missions exists because in places worship does not. And I believe that that is profoundly true, that missions exists because in places worship does not, right? And the ultimate goal, if you go all the way back to Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is a very intriguing passage. It's actually the most quoted Psalm, and I believe the most quoted Old Testament passage in the entirety of the New Testament. So when something from the Old Testament makes its way more than anything else, right? It's most often quoted. That means it was on the mind of Jesus. It was on the mind of the apostles. It was on the heart of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit kept referencing Psalm 2 to the authors of the New Testament in their letters and in their epistles, um, in their gospels, in their revelations. They reference Psalm 2 over and over again. And why is that? Well, part of it is it's one of the unique passages where we see something called the inter-Trinitarian dialogue, which is a fancy theological term to mean that we get to glimpse into the conversation between the Father and the Son. And David is actually speaking prophetically from the perspective of the Eternal Father, which is the one who sits on the throne of the entire universe, right? And David is getting to hear a conversation between the Father and between Messiah, between his Son. And what the father is saying to the son is ask of me and I will give you the nations of the earth as your inheritance. And so, of course, Jesus's response surely is that Jesus would ask for the nations as his inheritance. Right. So there has been from the very beginning a desire for God to fill the nation, fill, fill the earth and ultimately the nations of the earth with image bearers that bear his glory and his likeness that are his children, his sons, his daughters. And he's created this beautiful tapestry of humanity with different languages, different cultures, um, different ethnicities. But his zeal is that even in that diversity that there would be uniformity of worship, that there would be one person, the, the Jewish man Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, 
that he would be the one that ultimately all the nations would worship. And that's been God's plan from the beginning when he spoke in the garden and said to Eve that, that your seed will crush the seed of the serpent, right? And so we see in, in Psalm chapter 2 this idea concerning intercession. And even now we know from the book of Hebrews, like the son stands before the father and never ceases to make intercession, right? So consider, it's pretty remarkable, and it's actually what Jesus tells his disciples later in Matthew 9. He says, the harvest is plentiful. So what's the thing that he tells them to do? Pray to the Lord of the harvest, right? He doesn't say go teach. He doesn't say go do signs and wonders. He doesn't say go disciple them. He doesn't say go start churches. I mean, there are a lot of things that he could have said, but he says the first thing to do in the absence of laborers and in light of the abundance of the harvest is to pray. And because, I believe the reason why is because that's the very place of dependence upon the Father that even Jesus, as a part of the Godhead, begins the possession of the nations through the place of intercession, right? He says, I'm go- Jesus is going to possess all the nations of the earth and actually be the king that governs all of them. In Revelation, the portion we read later on, it actually says that we will get to reign with him on the earth. Right? Mind-blowing. Okay. But if we want to reign over the nations of the earth in the eternal age like Jesus, I think we have to start at the same place that Jesus started, right? And where did Jesus start? In his possession of the, interse- uh, possession of the nations. Where did Jesus start with his possession of the nations? It's in the place of intercession. If I had like a slide, slide presentation, I would say intercession comes before possession, right? You can, you can tweet that. <laughs> Our intercession actually gives us authority to move into those places of spiritual governance that God desires us to have in the nations of the earth as the people of God. Right? God has a plan that he's unfolding. And then I love Psalm 96 because it tells us something else. Not only is intercession important, but worship is important. They actually call this psalm, Psalm 96, It's one of the most evangelistic psalms in the entirety of the book of Psalms. And it actually is the place that the good news, the gospel, is actually referenced. It says in verse 2, proclaim good tidings or good news of his salvation from day to day. And I think what's so fascinating about this passage is when it says proclaim that, it's in the context of the proclamation being made through song. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, and proclaim his good tidings of his salvation from day to day. In the book of Isaiah, it talks about how the islands and the coastlands will sing. And as the nations sing to Jesus, he he returns to the song of the nations, right? If we were to go and, and be able to translate ourselves into the throne room of God right now, There are two things that are happening around that throne. I believe Jesus is there and says he never ceases to make intercession. So Jesus is there praying and the angels and the elders and the saints that are there in heaven, I believe that they're there worshiping, right? And I'm sure there's other things that they do. I don't know fully how the the realities of heaven work. But what I do know is it's a real place. I know that that throne really governs like 
stars, galaxies, all the affairs of all the nations of men, and the one who's seated on that throne, who gets to rule everything supremely, he puts the things around him that he likes. And he could have anything. And what he chooses to surround himself with is worship. He gets to surround himself with worship. And he doesn't just want the worship of one people group, as we see in the book of Revelation. He doesn't just want the worship of one particular family. He doesn't just want the worship of Israel, though he chose Israel to be the pathway of salvation. Ultimately, it's for the salvation of all the nations, every tribe, tongue, people, and language. And so God wants our intercession. God wants our worship. So now go with me, Matthew 24. We read it already, but... Matthew 24, it says these different signs of the times, and then it gives us, there's several signs that are obviously very negative, false Christs, disruptions in the earth, tsunamis, earthquakes, I mean, all these things that are happening that are described as the beginning of birth pangs, right? If you're a woman who's pregnant or uh, has ever gone through labor or ever experienced childbirth because you had someone close to you, my first childbirth was my daughter being born she's eight years old and we've had four kids now and um and each one was completely different you know but the way in which like contractions when you go into transition they grab grip a woman's body and then she has to push and there's just this miracle of giving birth and it's like one of the most intense things i've ever seen in my entire life right and that's what the scripture likens the coming of the lord to there are these disruptions that it, that come in greater intensity and frequency until the glorious day of the appearing of Christ. But one of the intriguing signs that's a positive sign that he promises is that the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the king's dominion is actually going to be preached in every nation before the end comes. So in the midst of some of the greatest disruptions the nations of the earth have ever seen, the gospel is is promised that it will be going forth with power and it will reach places that is in this final hour of human history, the gospel will reach places that it has never reached before in all of human history. And guess what? We get to be the generation that advances the gospel in our prayers, in our giving, and in our going to those unreached places. Like we get to live in a day. I cannot think of anything more exciting. It's, it's little, it's challenging, it's rough, it's ugly, right? In the sense that there's not a, a natural necessarily gl- glory to it. You know, it's not, sometimes you walk in buildings or you attend services or you hear music and you go, oh man, there's something naturally, beautifully appealing about this. I'm listening to the biography of Hudson Taylor right now, talking about his trips to inland China. One of his first ones this morning goes to a town where the gospel has never been preached. They, uh, the people that are going in with him that are locals, they say, you're going to get killed in there. We refuse to go with you. And he actually has to find a different group of people to like, carry the things that they have from the boat into the city because the local people are so afraid for their lives. But still, they go into the city and they get mobbed. But even as they're getting mobbed, they're handing out tracts and throwing um, Bibles to people that are in the crowd trying to mob them. And they end up getting favor with the local official even after the people persecute them and they're able to continue to bring the gospel to this village. But it just kind of describes 
someone had choked him and grabbed him by the neck and drug him to the local official and describes how Hudson Taylor leaving the village, you know, is disheveled, his body's out of joint, his neck and throat is burning, but he has no more of the Bibles or the tracks that he carried into the city of Chung, Chung Chow to begin with, right? I mean, that is the apostolic ministry, right? That is, that is, that is the sufferings of the marks of apostleship, you know, and, and without question, Hudson Taylor, this blonde dude from England who during one of his quiet times the Lord said I'm sending you to, to China and it says it, he describes in his biography that I'm listening to how from the moment that God spoke to him in a devotional time oh that God would speak a nation to one of us in our devotional times it became the consuming passion of his life to discipline his body to prepare his faith to learn medical skills to prepare himself mind body and soul he would he began uh, sleeping on more hard surfaces so that his body would be conditioned for the mission field. He began embracing voluntary sufferings in preparation for people that he had never met a Chinese person before. But God had spoken in a, in a moment of devotion and it changed the course of his life and through his obedience changed the course of history. And God is still doing the same thing today. And I believe he's going to do it as the disruptions are with, with increased intensity and frequency. I believe the apostolic calling and the calling of a prayerful people into the place of mission is going to also increase in intensity and in frequency. Because this gospel of the kingdom, it is promised before the end comes that it will reach every tribe, tongue, and people. And what's cool is that the book of Revelation shows us, for those of us that are missionaries and committed to this idea of reaching the unreached, it shows us that the devil is a liar, he's already defeated, and we've already won. Yeah. It's really only just a matter of time, right? I don't know if anybody in here has ever played like contact sports, but sometimes the game gets kind of ugly if you're a really good team and you run the score up because the other team just gets frustrated and starts taking hits at you, you know, whether it's football or soccer or other sports like that. And I feel like I've, I've had this image before in the past that it's kind of like we already know the score. Jesus at the cross, like run the score up like a million to nothing, right? But we're still on the field and we still have to run the clock out. <laughs> And we still have to defend and try and score goals. But at the end of the day, the victory is already determined. But unfortunately, the devil still gets to take shots at us. Right? If that analogy makes sense. Of course, all analogies eventually break down. But um, This idea that the end is determined is so important for us to ultimately have faith. I know it's getting warm in here. I feel warm myself. So we'll wrap it up and get into the prayer room. This, actually, somebody wants to just... Crack the door open. I think that'll help us. I'll turn the seat down. You just swing it open. It's all right. Let all creation hear. So go with me. The last passage that we read, last two passages we read together, Revelation 5. Verse 9, the angels and the elders around the throne, worthy are you to take the book to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So what did Jesus ask for in Psalm 2? The nations. The nations that he would inherit the nations, right? I believe when the scroll gets t given to the Lamb and he gets to release these seals, and with each seal it's the beginning of the end time judgments, right? He gets to set in motion the events that ultimately lead to his possession of the entirety of the nations and the glory of the second coming, right? 
Why is he the only one worthy to receive that title deed? Because he's the only one who perfectly obeyed God's law and then died for the sins of humanity, right? And then was resurrected in glory. And his, God's choice of him as his son, as God in the flesh incarnate, gave him unique authority as both fully God and fully man to ultimately receive all the nations of the earth, the very thing that we see David looking into in Psalm chapter 2, right? Imagine what it says, the, there was none found worthy to take the scroll, but then there was a lamb who appeared in the midst of the throne as one who is slain. It's amazing that it's Jesus' humility that qualifies him to receive the inheritance of the nations. And then if we look back at Psalm 2, it says this one who receives the nations, he's going to actually rule them with a rod of iron, right? And so it's just this beautiful dichotomy where the one who receives the nations does so because he's a lamb, Right? But in his leadership of the nations, make no mistake, he's not a pushover. He's got a rod. He is the lion of the tribe. He is both lion and lamb. So this one who receives the title deed of the nations and the authority to unleash the end of all human history as we know it, this one is worthy, and he's worthy because he was slain. And he was slain because there was something that he wanted, right? And it's amazing because it says actually in the temptation of Jesus, if you go and look at it and in, I believe it's Luke chapter, chapter uh, 4. Lights are popping on in the room. Luke chapter 4, right? It says that Satan takes him to the top of a very high mountain and says, I will give you all the nations of the earth and all of their glory, right, if you will bow down and worship me because these things were basically given to me by Adam. Like, Jesus, when your descendant fell, he gave me the authority of all the nations of the earth. So bow down and worship me and I'll give you. And what Satan is offering him is, is the thing that Jesus has come to possess. But he realizes that possession doesn't come through human pride and vanity. It comes through submission to the Father. And what's kind of cool is it says he showed him the nation of glory. And when we watch, I have a little kid's video that like tells these Bible stories and, you know, the picture, and even in the Jesus film we watch it, it's like the Parthenon and these different, you know, the, the uh, city of Rome and all these different nations kind of flash before Jesus in this, in this satanic temptation, in our interpretation of satanic temptation. Because it says, you know, it showed him all the nations and all their glory, right? But I just think it's intriguing that when it talks about what he, what he desired to possess, it wasn't money. And of course, we, know, we go, well, Jesus is God, but he was also fully man. It wasn't riches. It wasn't power. It wasn't positional authority. I mean, it wasn't these things that human leaders covet that Jesus died to possess. It says he bought men and women for God to be priests. He wanted our worship for eternity, our communion, our fellowship intimacy with us and for that reason he laid down his life when it says he have a city that will live in an eternity that's called the bride and it describes the beauty of that city coming down revelation 21 are you guys with me on this it's not the city that's glorious the city reflects the glory of the people and the god that dwell in it it's not jesus doesn't when it says he wants the nations it's not like he wants the buildings of downtown atlanta yes he'll he'll have that right 
And it's not like he, he, doesn't, he doesn't want the natural things that human beings crave. Yes, he'll receive those things. The ultimate thing that he wants is that the one thing that's created in the image of God, that displays the image of God more than anything else, that since the garden uniquely, I mean, God fashioned everything else with his words, but when it comes to humanity, he created us with his very own hands. And that which he fashioned with his own hands was lost in the fall. And Jesus came to redeem back that which God fashioned with his own hands, that which he put his unique mark on. And he gave his life to possess us. And what's amazing is that is both, it's so powerful when you think about it being true about you individually, right? Like Gabe Tarbutton, Jesus fashioned you uniquely, knit you together in your mother's womb, has orchestrated the course of your life so that there's been a continual invitation into his mercy and grace. You said yes to that. You began a relationship with Jesus. That relationship will go on into eternity. And this one that you've only known even dimly, you've only known him through his love letters. You've only known him like one day you're going to see him face to face and you're going to understand what it means that he died to possess you fully. It's so powerful to think about it individually, but it's also powerful to set foot in a nation and go all these people, the nation of Yemen, 24 million people, 0.01% Christian. Jesus died for all these people in the same manner that he died for me. Yet none of them know. They don't know. They haven't had the opportunity to hear or know how much he loves them. And here in our culture, we're blessed to have a church on every corner and free internships that we can come be a part of and a prayer room where we can sit with him and taste what heaven, the worship of heaven is going to be like. And yet there are places where we can go in the earth and Satan's dominion is there because God's people have not yet brought his kingdom. They've not yet brought incense. We skipped Malachi 111. It says his name for the rising of the sun to the setting will be great. Right, every more uh, the sun runs its course every day. Right, from the first place that daylight touches in the earth to the very last place that you know that day ends. It says the whole earth that his name is going to be made great among the nations. But that's not the reality today. And I believe that's intended. The more we get a revelation of how much God loves us, it should grieve us and trouble us that there are people that have never had the opportunity to hear or to know or to taste the goodness of God. And we see Psalm 2, it's the father, the son asking the father, give me the nations. The father saying, ask of me and I'll give them to you as an inheritance, right? And it's like, it's not just the inheritance of Jesus, but it's the inheritance of, of us, his bride. Because it says right here, those that you've redeemed, you've made them to be kingdom and priest to our God and we will reign on the earth. His inheritance actually becomes our inheritance. Like we get to as the saints with him in eternity rule and govern the nations of the earth. And we'll go deeper into that in in, uh, some of our end times classes, if that's a new paradigm for you. But it it should strike our hearts. It should strike our hearts that, and I think of Hudson Taylor and I go, I think Hudson Taylor is going to like, in the eternal age, get to like lead the nation of China, you know? Because he was willing to go into that nation suffer abuse, pray, like blood, sweat, and tears, you know, 
so into the ground and he, he dies. And it seems like wicked men now govern that nation who are anti-Christian, who are persecuting the church. And it seems like the devil's won. But the great reversal is coming. Jesus is coming back and the meek will inherit the earth, which we say it and it's like, oh, I'm so used to hearing that. But what that means is the meek ones of the kingdom of God throughout history, the Hudson Taylors, they will inherit real nations and real peoples in China. You know, and there'll be a thousand more names that we've never heard, right? But it's not just like a nice teaching. It's not just like a good thing to encourage you to be meek with your, with your spouse, you know, which you should be meek with your spouse. But you get that paradigm. You go, my meekness with my spouse is actually qualifying me for leadership in the eternal age. Like my obedience to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the nations is actually, and my willingness to pray and to groan and to weep over it and to enter into God's heart, I'm actually pursuing what Jesus died to possess and and what all of human history is culminating in. And a lot of people, they do evangelism or missions because they have this sense like it's what we're supposed to do, right? And what I hope you get to see from the picture of the little bit we're talking today is it's not what you're supposed to do, it's what you are destined to do. It was what you were created to do in co-leadership with Jesus. Like, why are we still here if it's not to teach the gospel of the kingdom to the nations of the earth? I mean, it's the last great commandment of Christ. Go into all the earth and preach the gospel to all creation. Hallelujah. So Revelation 7, the fruit of our labors. It says, after these things, I looked, behold, a great multitude, which no one should count. No one could count from every nation, all tribes and the peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb. (coughs) Clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice. So this multitude, it says later on, this is the multitude of those who are martyred out of the great tribulation. And what that tells me, right? is that in the very last hour, things are going to get so bad that people are going to be dying in all the earth, right, for their faith. People that are martyred, they died because they were a Christian coming out of the Great Tribulation. That means that there will be in Saudi Arabia, a nation with almost no Christians, there will be a potent enough gospel witness that there will be Saudi men and women who are laying down their life for the testimony of Jesus. In places right now where there is no gospel witness in Syria. I mean, there's persecution happening in Syria now, but in the the final hour, that persecution, Christians are going to be in every nation of the earth and they're going to be so radically in love with God that they're going to be laying down their lives rather than forsaking their witness. And they're going to love Jesus even unto death because this gospel is going to the nations. You know what that tells me? That tells me we win. We win. And the response of those who have laid down their life in this age for the sake of Jesus, their response is not even to heap or receive honor or praise themselves. It's salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb and all the angels standing around the throne and around the elders, the four living creatures. And I love this. It's in response to the worship of the saints. The, all, all the other times they've fallen down, it's in response to their own worship, right? But now it's actually the worship of the saints, of the martyrs coming out of the earth. It says basically the whole heavenly multitude crashes to the ground in worship. And I don't think this is like a, like a thing where like Steve the angel nudges Charlie and goes, okay, it's time to fall down and sing the song, right? 
No, it's, it's in the ecstasy. Have you ever had that moment where the holiness and the power and the awe of God just so fills the room that you, I just have to get on my face, right? Imagine the ecstasy of worship coming in a way that's so potent. It's the martyrs of the great tribulation singing praises to the one that they've died for. And the heavenly multitude goes, we just can't bear this. And they all, the angels that are flying on the throne, I mean, they fall to their face. They cover their faces. The elders with their crowns, they fall to the ground. They're throwing their crowns at the feet of the lamb. And the saints with the palm branches, the picture, right, of the manner in which they praised Jesus but later betrayed him. Okay, that's the picture, right? Palm Sunday, they lay down these palm branches for Jesus as a victorious king, but then he disappoints them when the Romans capture him and humiliate him. They say, oh, he wasn't who we thought he was, and they betray him. Now the martyrs of the earth are saying, no, you're exactly who we thought you were. You're the conquering king. Salvation or God who sits on the throne and all the angels standing around the throne, around the elders, Four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen. Let it be so. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving, honor, power, might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Basically, you're saying, you're the only one that could have done it. You're the only one wise enough. You're the only one strong enough. Your plan has been perfect from the beginning. It ends, your plan ends with the people that are faithful to you dying in the earth. It looks like a failure. It looks like Jesus is dead in the tomb. It looks like the church is dead. The persecution has reached such heights in the earth that all the Christians are dying. It looks like all is lost, but actually your plan was always ever perfect. And from every tribe, tongue, people, language, Jesus will possess his inheritance from the nations of the earth. And what he asked of the Father, he will receive. That's like, this is amazing, right? Sorry if I'm getting a little wild-eyed talking about it. It's, It's amazing. And what we get to do is we get to take our little part in that larger story. We get to be people who see this in the Bible and go, yes, Maranatha, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Yes, Lord Jesus. Yes, raise up a church in Yemen, Lord Jesus. Raise up a church in Syria. Lord, touch the nation. Lord, let there be worship in Mecca. And you'll hear us pray these things. And the reason we're teaching it today is when you hear, hear us praying it, you know, go back, listen to this, look at your notes. When you hear us praying it, it's like, oh, I can enter into this. This isn't just the, the crazy people at IHOP's kind of story, right? This is the Bible story. This is the Jesus story. This is where he's directing the affairs of the nations to to get the very thing we're talking about. And we get to kind of give him a piece of it today. Like we get to be a part of that story today. We don't have to wait for the far off future. We get to worship and praise him today and join in the asking of the father for the nations of the earth. Amen, let's pray. Father, I thank you. And I pray, the, I pray right now for the most difficult nation in the earth, the one that uh, is documented to have the most persecution, the most danger, and the most risk related to the gospel, and that's the nation of North Korea, followed by Saudi Arabia and Iran. And we pray, Father, for that communist totalitarian nation. We pray for the Sunni nation of Saudi Arabia and the Shiite nation of Iran. And we ask you right now in this moment, God, that you would break in 
that you would speak to people there who are perishing without knowing the name of Jesus or having had an opportunity to hear. We say, here we are, God, send any one of us. Lord, our lives are completely laid down for you. And we ask, Father, that you would follow us, you would thrust us to the nations, uh, to the places where there is great harvest but no laborers. Lord, we pray that you would show us intercession and worship as the foundation of the governance of heaven and the possession of the nations, this mystery that they're possessed through prayer, that authority is possessed through prayer and through worship that your throne, Lord, is established on praises. And Jesus, we say forever, you are supremely worthy of our worship. We pray where there is no worship, there is no incense. Lord, send people to light fires. Send people to burn in secret in prayer closets to change spiritual atmospheres that change governments and move angels and demons. Put Daniels in the courts of Babylon, Lord. Put Daniels in the courts of Kim Jong-un. Put Daniels in the courts of Kamini. We believe today. We believe today that the nations are your desire. And we say to you, Jesus, you are the desire of all nations. All men's hearts will come to you one day. Whether in righteous worship or in terror. We pray, Father, let let us see and experience your plan. Open the, I pray for just the spirit of revelation to touch hearts and minds in this room, to be awakened to the larger story of scripture. I pray for even people who are provoked by this teaching that they would go and they would study these things out in the word with an insatiable hunger. I invite you even right now, I just, I wanna pray for hunger in the word of God. If you just put your, hands across your chest or on your heart or or, or set them before the Lord, some physical posturing of receiving. I wanna bless you and pray for you right now. Father, I release an impartation of insatiable hunger that as they feast on the word that they would never be filled, they would just become hungry and hungrier. God, that there wouldn't be enough time in the day, Lord, to to, uh, absorb all the revelation that you're pouring out on them, Father. I pray for an overflowing cup I pray for all those that might listen to this by audio at a future time. Father, I pray bless them. Bless the hearers right now. Mark them, Lord. Mark them, Lord. Even as they listen in their car, as they listen, Lord, in their devotional time and they look at some of these passages, I pray, Father, that their spirits would be struck and that they would be called and commissioned to pray for the nations, that they would be called and commissioned to go to the nations, they would be called and commissioned to give their lives to to building businesses or institutions of education or engagement in governance so that they can play their part in, in the advancement of your kingdom to the unreached places of the earth. Right now, if you were to look at the finances and the sending and how it's distributed to the reached versus the unreached nations of the earth, far more resources go to the places that are already reached than the places that are unreached. It's something like for every $100 spent on unreached places, a penny gets spent. I'm sorry, $100 spent on reached places, a penny gets spent on unreached. And Lord, we just believe that's not your will. 
that you would want the greatest resource going to the hardest places. So we ask even right now, just a reorienting of the priorities of people's lives in this room. Even people that would, and even in our city, that people would say, I'm called to full-time ministry. I'm called to pastor a church. Oh, that they would go to hard places where the gospel is not being preached. Oh, that they would go to the poor places where they have no resource or natural beauty to attract people. That they would go to the, to the dumps and to the dangerous places of the earth. In this room and beyond, Lord, Multiply the sending, God. And here I am, I say again, here I am, send me, Lord. Even to a stiff-necked people who will not hear. You know, for Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, it was a glorious sending. The coal touches his lips. The angels are there. And when God gives him the word, he says, I'm sending you to a people and they will not hear you. But you did not think that the most eloquent prophet, Isaiah is the most eloquent in terms of language in in the Bible. You did not think that the most eloquent prophet's words were a waste upon people who would not hear. Because in your mercy, God, you saw fit to send him. Lord, I thank you that you don't judge by natural success or how many converts. I thank you, Father, you judge by faithfulness. Lord, let us be faithful in this room to everything you would ask us to do. I pray this for myself, Lord. Let us be faithful, God. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.